Good morning. How are you all this morning? Good. Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your story, your gospel story in scripture, and we thank you for the ways other stories point to the truth of your story. And so now speak to us. Um, Speak to us. Tell us the story of your great faithfulness. Tell us the story of the joy that awaits each one of us eternally. We thank you and praise you for what you're going to do. We thank you and praise you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. So this is part three of three. So we've, if you've been tracking with me, if you've been here for the last three weeks, and I think some of you have, then you'll have heard about fairy tales. What are fairy tales? We talked about in the first week, and we, and then looked at this idea of how there is such a strong sense of good and evil in fairy tales. We looked at how um, there is mercy for maleficence. And then last week we looked at how in fairy tales there is a theme of how beauty loves the beast, that there is transformation through um, love from outside of ourselves. And so I'm just going to recap a little bit of what we've talked about before, before we look at our topic for today, which is joyfully ever after. So starting at the beginning, we asked, what is a fairy tale? Does anybody remember how a fairy tale might be different from another story? not superheroes and you know ancient stories some ancient stories that are like superhero stories are legends where we if you think about some of the Greek legends where um, where you know Hercules is his human being but he has these incredible abilities that no other human being has that's a superhero story an ancient superhero story or we think also a Beowulf is a legend you know Beowulf the um, the man was I forget who's the hero of Beowulf I'm so bad in my English lit I don't know Ooh bonus points if anybody knows. Anyway, in Beowulf, the hero is a hero with super, like almost supernatural human ability, abilities. So it's also another ancient superhero type movie. Um, but one of the things that characterizes fairy tales is that the protagonists, the main characters, are just ordinary people like you and me trying to get along in the world, trying to have normal, healthy, happy family relationships. And you see a lot of these themes of family coming into play. So we talked about this one um, this one author that I've read, Jones. He says that fairy tales are narratives that have ordinary protagonists that deal with everyday life issues but involve some level of fantasy and magic. One of my favorite films from this last year um, was Birdman. If you saw it, it actually won the best award, um, the uh, Oscar for best Best Picture, which is hard to believe because it was by Ina Ratu, who's this Latin director, but the, his style of directing is one of magical realism. Everything seems normal, and then there's something way weird that happens, <laughs> and it's the way weird thing that happens that makes the story hopeful, and that's what happens with, I think that I loved that movie because I love fairy tales. There's something about that. In fairy tales, the fantasy the magical elements intervene in the lives of the ordinary people. What kind of fantasy elements do you remember from fairy tales? There are witches, dragons, potions, talking animals. Ooh, that was really good. You're right, because it seems so ordinary, and then they just start talking, which is why C.S. Lewis, in his Narnia books, he was so good about including those talking animals, remember? He was trying to make it into a fairy tale. Any other elements that you can think of in fairy tales that make them magical? 
Seven dwarfs? Are the dwarves magical? They're funny. There's some good comic relief in Snow White. We're going to be talking about Snow White a lot today. Joe? Poisoned apples, exactly. Poison and magical items. There are always these, if you think about too, I'm thinking of um, the stories of King Arthur and Merlin. You know, those are also like fairy tales. They're ordinary human beings. But remember the sword and the stone, how he pulls the sword out of the stone somehow mag magically. Um, all of these different fantasy elements are there. Fa um, fairy tales depict them, though, as a valid part of human experience. Fairy tales say that which is extraordinary is possible. That which is extraordinary that happens from outside of ourselves can actually be real. And so why read them except that that fantasy element, we begin to believe that it's possible for there to be a good God who intervenes into the closed universe of the human world to rescue and save us. Imagination paves the way for real, true faith in a God who loves us and has the power to change our real world. So fairy tales, um, they bring us to that place where we're able to believe because our imagination has been baptized, as C.S. Lewis says. They also show a world where evil is real and you can identify it pretty clearly. We talked last week about Hansel and Gretel. Do you remember the story of Hansel and Gretel? Remember the stepmother um, who marries the father and the children are sent out, sent away from the home because there isn't enough food and the wicked stepmother, there's always a wicked stepmother, isn't there? She sends them away and allows them to starve in the forest. They come back because they're clever. They find their way back. But the second time they're sent out, they use breadcrumbs to get back and the birds eat their breadcrumbs and then they're really lost. And who do they meet then but a wicked witch who's going to eat them? I mean, there's just this sense in which evil is real. And that's true in our world, too. We can anesthetize ourselves to it. But all it takes is reading the newspaper and saying, wow, um, people killing children in other parts of the world that work closer to home, that is evil. There are some things that all of us can get on board with and say, that's just wrong with a capital W. Well, there is evil, real evil in our world, but God is victorious over it. And we'll talk about that more today. And we talked that second week about how that evil is not just outside of ourselves as fallen human beings, but it's also within us as well. We are complicit in the evil of our fallen world. And I talked about how fairy tales have come of age in some of these recent depictions. Um, Carol, you mentioned Wicked last week. Um, and there's also the TV show, the ABC series, Once Upon a Time. You've seen that. There's um, in Maleficent, the movie, the recent movie, there's this idea that not it's not so easy to say this person's a hero and this person's a villain. This person is completely good, perfectly good and above blame, and this person is totally wicked. Because when we're talking about real, true human beings, we have a mixture of that within us. We are made in the image of God, but we are fallen and tainted um, by sin, every one of us. So there is no one who does not sin. We talked about that, and yet there is mercy that's available. We saw that with Maleficent. In that film, she repents, and in her repentance, there is redemption. There's some redemption made available to her. I didn't tell you the ending of it, but I encourage you to go see it for yourself and find out how is mercy extended to Maleficent in that film. So another reason um, why to read them is that uh, fairy tales show a world where righteous love transforms the unlovely. 
We talked about that last week in Beauty Loves the Beast. God in his perfect righteousness, he is the beauty. And we in our sin, we're beastly. I love that British word for describing uh, when someone's being naughty or just um, cranky. Oh, you're beastly. Oh, you're beastly today, aren't you? Well, God in his perfect righteousness manages to love us even when we are being beastly. Beauty shows her love for the beast in that while he was still a beast, she returns for him and loves him. And at the end of Beauty and the Beast, we saw last week that love of beauty transforms the beast back into the man that he once was. God's love for us transforms us into being um, humans again, into being righteousness beyond our own ability. Okay, any questions about that before we dig into this idea of being joyfully ever after? What do you care? I heard Please. an interview on NPR this week. They interviewed, they played an interview many years ago with a British actor that played the part of Dracula and other monsters in a lot of Christopher Lee. Oh, yeah. there you go. Did you hear that interview? And she um, just knows the name. But right? He said yeah. he grew up mm-hmm. listening, to, he loved fairy tales, but he thinks that um, the story of Dracula is something of a fairy tale. Would you agree with that? I would agree. If you read, I don't know about all, you know, there have been all these spin-offs in recent years. He said years. nobody has ever done a true movie of the book. Bram Stoker's read, Dracula. Yeah, I would agree. Nobody's ever done a true depiction. If you read Bram Stoker's Dracula, there is this hope that the vampire can be rehabilitated. There's this hope that there's redemption possible even for such as he. It's, it's actually a beautiful story. I really encourage you. And it's an easy read. It's a fun, easy read. I think it's been on kids' reading lists even in school. It's scary too, but it's, um, but it's good. So, yeah, I would, say, I would say it's somewhat of a fairy tale because of that magical element of the, even if it's a dark element, he's still there present in the story. And there's redemption. So um, looking back to fairy tales, a lot of this idea of fairy tales I've gotten from J.R.R. Tolkien, one of my favorite authors. The Lord of the Rings is what he wrote, but he also wrote an essay on fairy stories because he loved them so much. And in his essay on fairy fairy stories, he talks about how fairy tales give us, um, they give us a sense of escape from the trial and trouble and sorrow of our world a kind of escape that gives us hope and is not a bad thing. You know, you can escape into a bad novel or you can escape into a good story, and this is the kind of good story you want to escape into. He talks about it in terms of recovery, that fairy tales open our eyes to the beauty of the ordinary things around us in a way that gives us, after reading them, that gives us new vision for the world around us. And finally, he said, fairy tales bring us consolation. The, the potential of a happy ending is there within them. He coins this word of his own. It's not catastrophe, you know, like a crisis uh, that blows up. It's a you catastrophe. It's this turning. He calls the you catastrophe um, this um, thing that brings a catch of the breath, a beat and a lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears. Have you ever had that towards the end of a movie with a happy ending where the ending is so good, it's almost too good to be true, and you get a little teary, you get a little clutch, and yet you're smiling. It's like a rainbow, right? There's sun through the tears because it's so beautiful. So he says, in such stories, in these fairy stories, when that sudden turn comes, 
we get a piercing glimpse of joy and of our heart's desire. And for a moment, that passes out of the frame and runs the very web of the story. And there's this gleam of light that shines through, this gleam of hope, even in the midst of our circumstances. And that is why he would say that um, this vision of that this vision of triumph that we see in fairy tale stories are so like the gospel. He also says the gospels contain a fairy story. The Gospels contain marvels, these artistic, beautiful, moving things that are mythical. But among these marvels, he says, is the greatest and most complete conceivable catastrophe. He uses his own word to describe what happens in the Gospel. He says the birth of Christ is the catastrophe of man's history, the moment when everything changes for us. The resurrection is the catastrophe of the story of the incarnation, the moment where Christ being made flesh makes sense now because we are redeemed and, and eternal life is ours. He says the story begins, the gospel story, the story begins and ends in joy. It has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. Think about it. There's joy at the beginning of Jesus' life. Do you remember what the angels tell the shepherds? When they're in the fields, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Be not afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, of great joy which will come for all the people. That heavenly joy proclaimed by angels to poor shepherds in the fields at night. The joy of a baby who will change everything for all of humanity. There's joy, too. Um, The wise men have joy upon seeing Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. There's joy, too, for the women finding the empty tomb in Matthew chapter 28, 8. And just before Jesus' death, Jesus promises joy to his disciples. And this is where joy is different from happiness. He promises joy. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then he's preparing them for what's going to happen in a few hours. Because in John chapter 16, it's just going to be a little while. They're going to go out from the upper room where they are all together. And Jesus would go into Gethsemane. And there he would be betrayed by Judas and arrested and then tried and killed the next day. Just before all of that happens, he's preparing his disciples by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she is delivered of the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a child is born into the world. So you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. There was sorrow for those disciples in witnessing Jesus' arrest, betrayal, um, trial, and suffering and death. There's sorrow for us in this life. There's no one of us in this life, even for you that are very young, you're going to experience, I hate to say it, I don't want it to happen, but if you haven't already, there will be some sadness in your life. That's just part of being human. 
for every one of us, there is some kind of suffering that we will go through. And in the midst of that suffering, what we need to hear is that it will end and that God has not abandoned us in the middle of it. It will end and the ending of it is sure and certain. And at the end of the sorrow that we've experienced in this life, the joy will be so tangible and so complete that we'll even forget about the sorrow that happened. What he says about women having babies is true. I remember um, my, my sisters having their children. My one sister has four. My other sister has three. And, um, and you know, the, the weekend after the baby's born, you know, you go and visit them in the hospital. And you never want to say, but I'm their sister, so I can say, oh, are you going to have another one? I mean, you don't, unless you want to get slapped, you don't want to say that in the delivery room with a woman who's just had a baby, except that that joy is as tangible as holding a child in your arms. And I, I always found it amazing how a couple months later, you have to get past the sleepless nights. Once you get past the sleepless nights, what I've found with my sisters is they don't even remember the pain. I mean, some of you women will say, no, really, I remember the pain. But um, they say, I w we're going to have the next baby in two years. It's going to be great. It's going to be this way. It's going to be this way. We're going to have another one. At least my sisters with their three and four say that. They've forgotten the pain. They only remember the joy. And that's how joy is different from just happiness. Um, we talk about happiness in our country, and we get our language of happiness from our founding documents, from the Declaration of, Ep of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that um, all men are created equal, equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, when that was written in the 18th century, happiness did not mean what it means today. Today, we are a culture that pursues happiness and pleasure to the, to ex the extent that we forget to work even, my generation is known for this, and younger generations, that we're so obsessed with getting what we want um, that we get so curved in on ourselves. And so happiness becomes whatever I want is going to make me happy, and I demand that I get to have whatever makes me happy. Um, and that's a problem, isn't it? Because um, very often in this life, that is not what happens. Very often we don't get the thing we most want, even if it's a thing that's good for us. But God is still good in the midst of that, in the midst of that sorrow of maybe not getting what we want, maybe not being happy. There is still joy for us because joy is different than mere happiness. Joy is that rainbow that shines through the rain, the sun shining through and creating beauty. Joy is no longer remembering the sorrow because the joy of what has come eclipses completely the suffering that we've known. Okay. <laughs> One last little quote from Tolkien, if you can bear it. The consolation of fairy, fairy stories, the joy of a happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there's no true end to any fairy tale, I like that. There's no true end. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, it is not escapist or fugitive from this world. In its fairy tale or other world setting, the you catastrophe, this sudden turn of the happy ending, is a sudden and miraculous grace. Uh, the possibility of sorrow and failure uh, are not denied 
And in fact, they're necessary for the joy of deliverance. But the you catastrophe denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, the universal final defeat. And insofar as that, it is evangelium, gospel, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, as poignant as grief. Okay, so if you can bear with all that fancy writing and fancy talking, the joy is just as tangible as the sorrow. The joy is more tangible than the sorrow. The joy is made more complete by the fact that it's brought about our deliverance from sorrow. Um, And it denies this universal final defeat. If you are in the midst of suffering or sorrow, or when you've been in the midst of it, sometimes I get this Eeyore mentality where I think, oh, my life's never going to be good again. Nothing will ever get back on track. Life is just a tragedy. Here we go in the downward spiral. And that pessimism is not the the way the gospel story goes. I I don't have my um, board to draw on it, but many of you have heard me say before that the gospel is not a tragedy. All of these historical, modern historical scholars want to look at the gospels and say, oh, they're so tragic. Jesus dies this horrible death all alone. But they're missing out on the resurrection. They say that because they don't believe in the possibility of the resurrection. The low point of the cross is, yes, a low point. It's a dive down into the depths of sorrow and suffering and tragedy. But from that very moment, that lowest point, um, God is working out our salvation. God is accomplishing our redemption. And then Jesus' resurrection brings the story back into a joyful upswing. Jesus' resurrection in the Gospels is that sudden turn when everything now is different. So here is, um, and they lived happily ever after. I'm going to show you something from, I'm going to show you this longer video, and it's going to be frustrating because the sound is not perfect, but I couldn't find a better one. This is from Snow White, and I couldn't think of a better fairy tale with a happy ending that we all know really well. There are a lot of obscure Grimm's fairy tales, and I encourage you to read them. They're very grim and very obscure. And interesting, just to get a mind into that, a light, you know, window into that 19th or 18th century German mindset. You just this sounds not perfect because it was yes. recorded 80 years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, they, oh, no, 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 it's a different Snow White. I'm going to show one from those and that. But this is one, this is from Snow White and the Huntsman. Did anyone see that? It came out in 2012. It has the ever popular Kristen Stewart in it, who's the... Anybody know who she is? She's a, yeah, she's a vampire girl. Isn't she beautiful? I'm showing it to you because the cinematography is gorgeous. So let me turn out the lights and you can see it. I'm going to pause it when you can't hear it. Even if you can't hear it, don't worry. It's still going to be beautiful. I mean, you know what's going to happen, so you don't really need the words. He's telling her that she reminds him of his dead wife. This is the huntsman who was um, supposed to kill her.
Just said, I'm so sorry I failed you. But you'll be a queen in heaven now. So I know it was quiet, and I'm sorry. I'm going to show you one more. You can you can actually hear them in this one, but it's so brief that you don't get the sweeping music. And I know it's romantic. It's so much more than romantic, though. It's just that in this particular fairy tale, it happens to be a kiss that is the eucatastrophe. Tolkien understood what this eucatastrophe was. He, he coined the word. But in The Lord of the Rings, if you've read The Lord of the Rings, I won't give away the ending because the eucatastrophe is too good. You haven't read it? Skip ahead to the end. I mean, so <laughs> good. They, they're, you know, Frodo and Samwise are laboring in Mordor. They're trying to destroy the ring, the one ring that will rule them all. And it gets so bleak and so dark that you cannot imagine that there will ever be joy and gladness again. You cannot imagine that there's going to be a happy ending to this. And then the way it turns on a dime is beyond what you could have imagined. And it's so beautiful and so joyful. And that's how it is here. You heard that little bit of music surge right after the kiss. And now you can hear what he's actually saying. It doesn't really matter. I can be a queen in heaven now. And sit among the angels. They were cutting this clip just for that romantic kiss between the hunk, the bohunk, and Kristen Stewart. And so they missed out on that beautiful surge. That moment is as dark and as bleak as the tomb with Jesus in it that Saturday before he rose from the dead. 
And I see it here in the, um, in the now it's the 1937 version, the 80 year old version of Snow White, if you can imagine, it's that old. Um, but it really, and it's timeless in a way. And there are some things about this cartoon that are comic. I find this one to be really funny. And indeed, any comedy is something that has that upswing at the end, that has that unbelievable happy ending that's almost too good to be true. But what I love in this one is you're going to see how everyone reacts to Snow White waking up. When we saw it before in the other one, in that gothic, it's not gothic, it's Romanesque cathedral type building. It's so stark and so beautiful. She's so beautiful lying there. And that tear and the breath that you begin to see in her is like hope. And here we see hope in just this way that makes you want to smile and dance and laugh. joyful again. that castle at the ending. Do you see where they got the image for Disney World? Did you know that? Well, this idea of the castle descend it looks like it's descending there, doesn't it? But it's not. It's shimmering off in the distance. That's Prince Charming's castle. Well, it's scripture. Where do they get that? Except at the very end of scripture, do you remember what happens? Um, St. John there on the island of Patmos, at the end of all trial and tribulation, the end of the final judgment, then, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. 
He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. I need to read that every day to have hope for the last day. All of human history will turn on a dime. Jesus will return as he promised. And um, those who believe in him will dwell with him eternally, which sounds boring, but it's not. And it's not as simple as happily ever after because we won't have all the things that we think in our sinful flesh we need. We'll have only those things that God desires for us, all good things will have joy as tangible as a baby that you can hold in your arms. It will be as beautiful as that castle in the distance. And so um, with that, we can say thanks be to God. Let's pray. And so now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Amen.